A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Francis Sternley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, as Russia continues to bombard Ukrainian cities, we assess Emmanuel Macron's claim that nothing is off the table when it comes to supporting Kyiv, suggesting Europe is reconsidering its approaches to the conflict. And later, we consider parallels with the first Gulf War, which ended 33 years ago this week, and hear from protesters in Kyiv demanding the return of their loved ones from Russian captivity. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 27th of February, two years and three days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes, and former tank commander, Hamish de Breton-Gordon. I started, as ever, with the latest military updates from Ukraine. It was a surreal feeling, digesting the latest reports from Ukraine this morning from the security of Telegraph Towers. In Ukraine, they are unsurprisingly injected with an even greater urgency and palpability. We learned today, for example, that Russia launched 13 attack drones and a barrage of missiles at Ukraine overnight, with air defence systems destroying 11 drones as well as two guided missiles over several regions, according to Ukraine's air force. In total... They claim Russia launched 13 attack drones, four KH-59 guided air missiles, one air-to-surface KH-31P missile, and then a range of ballistic missiles. I spoke to David this morning, and he and our producer Adley were in Babinyar yesterday, the site in Kiev of the massacre of 100 to 150,000 people by the Nazis during the Second World War. He said there were several air raid sirens there over the course of the day, a haunting sound for those who've never heard them, especially at a site such as that. But despite those, it is quieter in Kiev than we expected this past fortnight. Most activity is around the rest of the country and in the east, it seems. We hear of heavy activity near Kharkiv, for instance. But in other military developments, Russia's defence ministry say that its forces are preventing Ukrainian troops from crossing the right bank of the Dnipro River in Ukraine's Herzon region. That's coming from Russian state news agency TASS. 
Interestingly, our friends at the Institute for the Study of War have analysed the implications of Putin signing two decrees yesterday that officially re-established the Moscow and Leningrad military districts, codifying what the ISW calls its major military restructuring and reform efforts. As they say... Putin signed one decree that deprives Russia's northern fleet of its status as an inter-surface strategic territorial organisation, in simple terms, a joint headquarters, and transfers land previously under its command to the newly formed Leningrad military district. The second decree formally re-establishes that district and the Moscow military district, with the former taking over most of the territory previously under the northern fleet. The second decree also incorporates occupied Ukraine into the southern military district, including all of Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donetsk and Luhansk, not just the parts currently under Russian occupation. Crucially, and this is why we mention it here, the inclusion of both the occupied and unoccupied parts of Ukrainian territory further suggests that Russia maintains maximalist objectives in Ukraine and seeks to fully absorb all five of these Ukrainian territories into the Russian Federation. As the ISW says, the formal transfer of regions previously under the responsibility of the Northern Fleet is likely part of a wider Russian effort to re-establish military district commands as the primary headquarters for the Russian ground forces while reassigning naval assets to the Russian Navy. It's all about consolidating control over Russian operations in Ukraine in the short to medium term and preparing for a potential future large-scale conventional war against NATO in the long term. All evidence, in short, that Russia is reforming its structures for the long haul, with its central objectives in Ukraine becoming a core part of the chain of command itself. As we've said for many months now, the longer the war was allowed to go on, the more likely this was to happen, with Moscow's maximalist objectives becoming part of the philosophy of the entire army. It should further underline the sense of urgency within NATO and Europe. As should, to move on, the remarks of President Zelensky this week, that Russia is preparing a new offensive for late May or summer, consistent with assessments that Russian forces have regained the theatre-wide initiative and will be able to pursue offensive operations this year following the failures of the Ukrainian counter-offensive. Russian forces will have the ability to manoeuvre reserve concentrations and determine how and where to allocate resources while forcing Ukraine to respond defensively as long as Moscow maintains the strategic initiative. Now, Zelensky has stated that the Ukrainian military has a clear plan to counter Russian forces, but Russia would not have these opportunities in the first place if Kyiv had been given the material to launch its own offensives this year. Meanwhile, Chief of the Russian General Staff, Valery Gerasimov, is continuing his recent campaign to engage with Russian military personnel following the Russian capture of Abdika, reportedly visiting a command post of the 58th Combined Arms Army. It was noteworthy, I think, that in Dom's interview with General Badanov, which I was also lucky enough to be in the room for, Badanov was willing to acknowledge that Gerasimov is the great survivor in the Russian armed forces, though he also said that that may well be in part because there was no one who could feasibly replace him. And I recommend to listeners to check out that interview, which we put out in Friday's episode in audio form, but which is also there in video form as this week's Defence in Depth. 
Now, lastly, the political announcements of Ukraine's Western supporters, which Joe will cover imminently, is also extremely significant in the military context. Over 20 heads of state, including 15 EU leaders, met in Paris yesterday to discuss the ramping up of ammunition supplies to Ukraine. Macron organised the conference and announced the creation of a new coalition to supply Ukraine with longer range missiles and munitions. The topic of the moment, I would say, given the American context. Macron also stated that France will do whatever it takes to ensure that Russia cannot win this war and that European states should prepare for possible Russian escalations in the coming years. But what's really caught people's eye this morning are the other remarks of Macron, which speak to the high level conversations and debates, I think, taking place in Europe in the face of the prospect of Russian advances in Ukraine. So, Joe, you're following this closely. What exactly did Macron say and how have NATO and the Kremlin responded? Hey, hi, folks. Joe, I'm slightly, sorry for slightly busy. I've had to duck into a cafe to take this, such as the busyness of being on the road. But so interestingly, Macron, as Francis alluded to, hosted 20 or so heads of state and leaders of governments. David Cameron, the Foreign Secretary, Lord Cameron of Chipping Norton, represented the UK there. And there was also senior officials in the US and Canada there. But what I guess was the most interesting, the most noteworthy um, intervention that Macron made last night was he refused to rule out the prospect of NATO or European troops being deployed to fight in Ukraine. And that is obviously a huge issue and there's obviously many caveats to go with it. So firstly, I'll say the summit yesterday in Paris was arranged because what is seen as dwindling Western support and the fears that basically the West won't be able to plug the gap left by the US if that delay in military support continues. So Macron confirms that there was a, and this is a quote, very frank and direct discussion about the prospect of Western soldiers being sent to Ukraine. He said, and I quote, there's no consensus today to send an official manner of troops on the ground, but in terms of options, nothing can be ruled out. Basically, he started goading people who have been considered not to have been given their full support for Ukraine, Germany being one of them at the beginning of the war. So he went on to say, we will do everything needed so Russia cannot win the war. Many of the people who say never, never today were the same people who said never, never tanks, never, never planes, never, never long range missile, never, never this two years ago. I remind you that two years ago, many around this table said we will offer sleeping bags and helmets. And that is a not so veiled dig swipe at Germany who after the Ukrainians basically made pleas for weapons after the invasion started, decided to send 5,000 military helmets to Ukraine rather than weapons. This has obviously sort of triggered a huge discussion now in the West. Obviously, the main concern being what the hell is going on? I think Macron said they spoke about it last night. But I think now Western leaders have come out and people, whether it's like at the top of government or they're starting to filter through their sort of their aides and their special advisors are starting to basically reveal that the consensus was, Macron, you may have raised this, but hell no, we're not doing it. So what's interesting is Jens Stoltenberg, when he was asked about this, essentially poured cold water on the plan. Jens Stoltenberg, who is the head of NATO for now, said NATO allies are providing unprecedented support to Ukraine. We have done that since 2014 and stepped up after the full-scale invasion, but there are no plans for NATO combat troops on the ground in Ukraine. I was speaking to some military sources in the UK, who basically said that Rishi Sunak 
or via Lord Cameron also outrightly rejected this because it would be a, and I quote, major escalation. If you then look to Germany, Olaf Scholz has also denied that this is a distinct possibility. So this is what Olaf Scholz told journalists this morning in response. What was agreed from the beginning among ourselves and with each other also applies to the future, namely that there will be no soldiers on Ukrainian soil sent there by European states or NATO states. So that I think Macron has caught himself in a situation where he is trying to hurry support, maybe become the sort of strongman of Europe, because there is a, well, the strongman of the world, because there is a distinct lack of Western leadership at the moment, given the fact that the US support is all over the place. The UK hasn't quite stepped up. Germany has its own sort of concerns and is never fully able to take a leading role because of this fear of escalation. So Schultz went on and said, no German soldiers on Ukrainian land and no participation of German soldiers, basically stressing that this explicitly includes preventing an escalation into a war between NATO and Russia. So look, that's such a no-go for, for the Germans. Um, we've got the Brits saying no, we've got NATO saying no. The US are very cautious, um, even though apparently they have, according to reports from the New York Times, CIA people based in Ukraine watching uh, for Russian intelligence. It just seems a very far-flung possibility. But I'll go on to talk about the rest of the summit, because I think there's some really interesting and and probably more relevant sort of topics that were brought up for Ukraine in the short term. And I think the main one is that France and Macron have now dropped a long-held sort of opposition to EU funds being used to procure weapons from outside of the EU on behalf of Ukraine. So you'll know from my reporting that the EU is discussing a five billion or five yeah, five billion euro aid package which would be used to by weapons for Ukraine across 2024, but that has been one held up by the French and the Greeks because they don't want Turkish weapons being bought, basically saying that we need to invest in European industry because without America, we need some sort of investment in European industry. But that essentially stopped a coalition that is being built by the Czechs after Czech President Peter Pavel found 800,000 artillery shells in non-EU countries that he were basically put up for sale and could be transported to Ukraine within weeks. That programme would have cost 1.5 billion euros. The Czechs didn't have the money, but Peter Pavel went around canvassing and speaking to people. So the Dutch yesterday agreed 100 million euros towards that, but that's still a hell of a lot of money to find. Who has 5 billion on the table waiting to be agreed? The EU. Without this uh, French opposition for that being used to only buy weapons inside the EU, that potentially opens up 1.5 billion of that EU fund cash going to the Czechs to buy this artillery, which would be a massive boost for Ukraine in the short term. And then what else have we got on stage, which I thought was interesting in the last few days? Also, I'll go back to what the Kremlin said about troops on the ground. They basically said it would lead to an inevitable war between Russia and the West. That's interesting. And then over to Germany, which is from our reporter, James Rothwell, our Berlin correspondent. He has basically reported on a growing frustration in Germany over the the Olaf Scholz's refusal to give Taurus long-range missiles to Ukraine. So speaking to Develt, the Bundestag Defence Committee Chairman, Mary Agnes stack Zimmermann said it was not the case that German troops would be needed to be deployed in Ukraine for that system to operate. So one of the arguments that Olaf Scholz has been using is that he thinks that German troops would need to be on the ground to pre-program the missiles before they're sent up into the sky on Ukrainian jets and fired at Russian targets. But basically, this is what 
Miss Strike Zimmerman had to say, if that is the argument, we would have to immediately withdraw all automatic weapons that respond to attacks. No one who is calling for Taurus missile to be sent to Ukraine wants Germany to become a party to the war. And then in another big development, Hungary has finally ratified Sweden's uh, NATO accession. So that basically ends 18 months of delay, but also is a huge shift that basically unravels nearly 200 years of military neutrality from Sweden. And we expect the flag raising ceremony to happen at some point this week in Brussels, maybe Friday, it's been muted for. But that's just huge because it, it's now you've got Finland and Sweden have joined NATO in sort of record time. It's I think it adds 1,400 kilometres of border between NATO and Russia and basically will help stretch Russian forces um, if it is really serious about defending against what it perceives as an imminent NATO attack. So I think that's a really fascinating thing that's happened. It's a massive, historic moment. Everyone hailed it. Richie Sunak called it historic. Stoltenberg called it historic. And then I think what happens from there is basically Ukraine could be next on the card to join after the war ends. So it's this enlarging of NATO, which is exactly why Russia said it, invaded Ukraine to stop that. One of the many reasons that Putin gave. But now he's witnessing NATO becoming stronger and stronger, more relevant than ever. And I'll stop there, Francis. Thanks, Joe. I know you have to dash off to write that for the paper, so I'll let you get back to your keyboard and we'll turn quickly now to the other political developments in the context of Russia and its allies before we get to Hamish. North Korea has shipped containers that could hold millions of artillery shells to Russia, a top South Korean official has said, which allow Putin to maintain his assault on Ukraine as Kyiv's stocks of ammunition dwindle. North Korea is estimated to have sent now about 6,700 containers to Russia, accelerating the pace of shipments since Putin held a summit with Kim Jong-un in September. Those containers could hold about 3 million rounds of 152mm shells. Russia, in return, is providing Pyongyang with food, raw materials and parts used in weapons manufacturing. That food aid is helping Kim stabilise prices for necessities, adding if the arms transfers grow, that Russia is set to send more military technology to North Korea, which of course has then the ability to threaten the wider region. Whilst North Korea and Russia deny, remarkably, any arms transfers, imagery from commercial satellites has shown about four cargo vessels shuttling between a North Korean port near the Russian border and a former Soviet submarine port. The White House, indeed, has said that it has tracked some of those shipments as they've travelled all the way by rail across Russia to be stored in depots in Russia near Ukraine, something we've reported on in the past. Now, the shell crisis was perhaps the subject I discussed most with very senior political and military figures in Ukraine, which you'll hear about in the coming days. When you hear those numbers, you can see why this has become such a pressing issue, albeit an entirely predictable one. As so often, it feels like the West is still responding to Russian actions as opposed to preempting them. And the problem with that is one is therefore ceding constantly the strategic initiative to Moscow, which of course has zero scruples and will operate in the space afforded to it. But in other developments, Russian Security Council Secretary Nikolai Petrushev, a top ally of Putin, has met Cuba's former leader Raul Castro to discuss security cooperation. That's coming from Interfax today. Petrushev assured Castro that Moscow remains committed to the spirit of strategic partnership between the two countries, it said. 
This comes in the context of the Kremlin trying to shore up its old Cold War allies who were concerned about being openly friendly to Moscow after the international response to the full-scale invasion, which, of course, has now dwindled two years into the war with many countries more openly willing to engage with Putin and the Kremlin directly. In the economic sphere, Russia has announced a six-month ban on exports of petrol as Putin's regime races to meet domestic demands from drivers and farmers. The ban, which comes into force on March 1st, will also allow for planned maintenance of refineries. Russia previously imposed a similar ban between September and November last year in order to tackle high domestic prices and shortages. Then, only four ex-Soviet states, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Armenia and Kyrgyzstan, were exempt. However, this ban will extend to member states of the Eurasian Economic Union, including Mongolia, Uzbekistan and two Russian-backed breakaway regions of Georgia. The health, or not, of the Russian economy remains one of the great unanswered questions of the war, I would argue. And there will be more on that specific issue and the apparent failures of sanctions over the coming days, based on our interviews in Ukraine with big figures there. And just lastly, before I go to Hamish, just as a reminder that there is still vocalised opposition to Putin in Russia, despite the death of Navalny in prison last week. A Russian court has today announced that it is sentencing a top human rights campaigner, Oleg Orlov, to two and a half years in jail for denouncing Russia's assault on Ukraine. For listeners who've been with us for a long time, Orlov, a 70-year-old, he's a key figure of the Nobel Prize winning memorial group which commemorates the crimes of Stalinism and he's someone we've spoken about several times as one of the leading vocalisation figures of opposition to Russia's continued systemic suppression of its history. As the judge read the verdict, this bespectacled white-haired activist winked at his wife, fellow activist Tatyana, and around 200 supporters who were waiting in the corridor outside as the courtroom denounced him and sent him to a penal colony. Orlov was accused of discrediting the Russian army in a column written for the French online publication Mediapart and fined in October after a first trial. He told AFP in a recent interview that he held no illusions on the outcome of the trial. So that's where we are with updates. And now very pleased to hear from Hamish de Breton-Gordon. Hamish, it's been a while. Let's start with, I think, the very interesting announcements today that Joe was just talking about of NATO boots, potentially or not, on the ground in Ukraine. When you hear that, do you welcome that news or do you think that this is unnecessary speculation? Well, good afternoon. Great great to have you guys back from Ukraine. I've been away myself in Kenya for a few weeks. Lots of listeners to the pod out there who no doubt will be tuning in now. And I was in the House of Parliament last night and lots of listeners there. So, but yeah, let's look at this boots on the ground thing. I think it is really interesting. And I think the reaction of Schultz and others to say never, never is absolutely barking. Of course, there will be NATO boots on the ground in Ukraine, if need be, if in dire straits. And if we're trying to give a message to Putin that absolutely no way are NATO boots going to be in the ground in Ukraine, the freedom of manoeuvre that gives him is extraordinary. So I I very rarely agree with Macron, I must say. But I think what, what he was saying, the say what I'm reading into it, 
is, yeah, in extremis, of course, because with any sort of defense or fight, you want to destroy the enemy as far out as you possibly can. You, you don't want to trade ground, as it were. If NATO is going to have to fight Russia, it wants to fight it as far forward as possible. So, yeah, I think Putin needs to realize that there is that is a possibility, however unlikely it is. And, and I think also I saw, and I think it was commented in the paper this morning, that MOD spokesman had said there were no plans for large-scale deployments to Ukraine. Well, no, they're not, but there are lots of plans for large-scale deployments anywhere. So I think it is a really interesting piece. I'm more with Macron than the others. And crikey, if Schultz and the Germans, are, are, they're almost first in the firing line. So I would hope, and I'm sure under the surface, there is a lot more activity going on here. Because the other piece, as you mentioned, with NATO, and something I've been commenting with others about is the the possibility of losing US support. Absolutely a shocking possibility, but it's something we must plan for. And I think it's a real wake-up call, not just for the UK, but all of Europe, that we really need to look at our defensive capabilities and see if they're really up to the mark for 2024. We've paid lip service to them since the end of the Cold War. So, yeah, really, really interesting time. So that my, my take, and then very keen to discuss perhaps parallels today with what myself and others got up to 33 years ago after the Ill illegal invasion of Kuwait. Well, let's turn to that now, Hamish. You say tomorrow, I think I'm right in saying, is the 33rd anniversary of the end of the first Gulf War. To just contextualise why this is relevant to Ukraine, of course, we're at the stage now where Ukraine is trying to or tried to break through defensive lines and is having to think long term about how to successfully break through those defensive lines that it was unable to do so last time. Now, when you were involved in the Gulf, that was exactly the task that was set to you and your boys, as it were, was breaking through pretty entrenched defence positions. So in that context, what do you think are the lessons for that war with the war we see in Ukraine today? I think there are many. And one, I suppose there is danger of oversimplifying it. But let's look in, in sort of broad terms. So the Gulf, first Gulf War was created, but was caused by an illegal invasion by Iraq of a sovereign state, Kuwait. And with all the various ties we had, and with the US, a coalition of force was put together to really recover Kuwait for itself and to push the Iraqis out. So I think that that is the first element. And of course, Saddam Hussein was a tyrannical dictator like Putin. We then look at the sort of equipment going down into the weeds slightly, but we were in Challenger 1 tanks, which actually has exactly the same gun as the Challenger 2 tank and is not that different fighting Soviet equipment, T-72s, T-64s, T-55s. So in a way, it was something we'd rehearsed for. All my early days as a tank commander were really in Germany, actually preparing for the Russians heading west. Yeah, little did I know 33 years later, the Russians are you know, absolutely doing that uh, and something that we need to be well aware of. As you say, there was a massive defensive position along the border 
with Kuwait and Saudi Arabia that one had to break through. It was berms, huge highs built up of sand, lots of deep trenches, uh, minefields uh, and lots of barbed wire. I might say not quite as extensive as the Sorovkin line uh, in the sort of 650-mile border between the Ukrainian uh, and the Russian forces, but a, a similar sort of um, challenge to it. I think the number one thing I would say is that we wanted for nothing. We had stacks of ammunition. We'd done a lot of training as well. I'd just come back from three months in Canada, the, what's called BATIS, the British Army Training Unit, Suffield, where we did all our tank and armoured training. So we knew absolutely what we were doing. We could do the manoeuvre. We could work with artillery and air. Had no shortage of air power. So I think that's the number one thing. And that absolutely, Zelensky and others have said, had we not drip, drip fed equipment and ammunition to, to Ukraine, really from the 24th of February 2022, and given them the whole lot as soon as we could have done, we might be in a very different position now. So we were trained, we had all the equipment we, were, we needed, and we had all the firepower. And when it came to going through the obstacle belt, the sort of Sorovkin line, as it were, the overwhelming firepower that the Americans used meant that the Iraqi Air Force was destroyed and grounded. So we weren't being caught in minefields as the Ukrainians are, because it's a slow business. Even back in the first Gulf War, I mean, the Americans dropped these huge, what they call daisy cutters, which are fuel air bombs that, that just exploded all the mines. And then our tank plows could plow through it and we could get through it. But it was a complex, deliberate operation. But that, that really w was the great difference. I think the other thing to consider, and hopefully it is what financiers and others are considering the Minister of Defence at the moment, we had three tank regiments. We had a whole British division, but basically three tank regiments in total, about 160 tanks. Now, if we're called on to do that today in Ukraine, we'd be lucky to get a third of that uh, out of the door. So I think when it comes to the budget next week and, and when people are looking at the defence, as I mentioned, not just ourselves, but others in Europe, we really need to make sure that we have the capabilities. I think the other thing that, that has struck me is that the actual ground war, as we call it, in Kuwait only lasted four days. And it was real shock action. That is when you've got armoured manoeuvre forces, that's what you want to do. As Klaus Fitz said, uh, shock, clout, don't dribble it and really go for it big time. Don't just try and incrementally uh, create success. And, th and that's exactly what we did. We travelled about, I think it was 350 miles in four days. Now, if you think Crimea is about 200 kilometres long and about the same wide, in those four days, we would almost gone top to bottom of Crimea. So if the Ukrainians can been able to do that, the stuff that we did in the first Gulf War, then everything is possible. But it needs that totality. I think the final thing that I'd finish on, which I think might be of interest to people, I heard a story the other day, which I had never known. And it is slightly in the public domain, but it's about blue on blue. And, and we've talked and, and Dom and I have talked about blue on blue sort of frequently throughout this two-year war. And it's where basically their own forces shoot each other up because of a whole host of reasons. But, but I learned the other day, some people might remember a chap called Jamie Hewitt, James Hewitt, 
who, who became famous for, for a whole host of things. But he was commanding the Household Cavalry Tank Squadron, which was part of our battle group. A battle group is a group of tank squadrons and infantry companies. And on this night, 33 years ago, 27th of February, his squadron of 14 challengers lined up, acquired some targets, enemy forces, and requested that they open fire. The regimental headquarters said, yeah, carry on, Major Hewitt, you can fire. He was not certain. He then went even to his higher command, the brigade headquarters, to ask permission to fire. They again said, yeah, there are no friendly forces. You got permission to fire. And he still wasn't sure. He was just about to give the fire orders for these his 14 tanks to open fire when on the, the radio, uh, what we call a stop, stop, stop happens. When you're in contact... When you're at war, if somebody says stop, 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 you absolutely do. That means that something terrible has happened or about to happen. And at that moment, he was informed that, no, these were friendly forces. These were actually B Squadron 1420th Hazars, which was the squadron I was with, commanded by General Richard Sharif, who you've had on the pod too. Uh, and we came within seconds have been probably annihilated by a squadron so that and i only learned that story a few days ago I might well be writing it up interestingly the day before our um our artillery um advisor ha- had emptied 30 rounds of machine gun into the turret of my vehicle as well but luckily the only damage done there was to the sleeping bags and my drivers and others were devastated but it's the sort of thing that happens and uh and i think so really in some if the Ukrainians had everything they needed, as Zelensky's asked for, then they could, I'm sure, replicate something like the action that we did 33 years ago. And I think moving forward, we've talked about NATO, we've talked about boots on the ground. I think leaders in Europe, in this country, must plan for absolutely every eventuality. The worst case would be our troops on the ground fighting in Ukraine, but we mustn't dismiss it because if we do, Putin will take advantage of it and he is a tyrant who will do anything for success in Ukraine. Thank you, Hamish. So a doubly poignant anniversary for you, learning what you've learned. And another anniversary, of course, was over the weekend, the two-year anniversary of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. I just wanted to ask you for your final thought, Hamish, what you reflected on over the weekend on that announcement? Well, I think I'm sure like everybody, when one reflects on what's happened, the devastation that has happened to Ukraine, the amount of soldiers on both sides who have been killed and wounded, that this is happening in 2024 is such a failure strategically of leadership not just a failed leadership in Russia, that's just the way Putin operates, but across the world. And we have really dropped the ball since the end of the Cold War. And I think too many of our leaders have no experience of even the Cold War. Most of the leadership, the politicians on all sides that fought in the Second World War and had a real feeling for that sort of strategic brinkmanship and how to avoid war. And I think we've li- really lost that in the last 20 years or so. And it's something that we need to sort out. I know everybody is, there are so many bad things happening from the cost of living to climate change, 
to Gaza, to Yemen, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it is nothing compared to the potential to really what you started off the program with, that having to fight in Ukraine ourselves. And it's something that our politicians in this country, in Europe, and God, hopefully in the States as well, absolutely focus on. Because if we don't sort it out this year, this is going to drag on and it's going to encompass us all. And the absolutely last thing anybody in the world wants, except Putin, is war in Europe again. And at the moment, it's a possibility and we've got to do all we can to make sure that doesn't happen. Thank you, Hamish. I know you have to dash off as well, like Joe. Busy day for everyone, I think. Now, just to end, I know listeners are keen to hear more about what David, Dom and I were up to on our trip to Ukraine. I would just flag that if you didn't hear it over the weekend, we put out a special episode reflecting on two years of war with Nobel Peace Prize winner Alexander Matichuk. Really, really fascinating talking to her and reflecting on the past couple of years, particularly on the subject of war crimes and the implications of any further successes for Russia in Ukraine. So I recommend that. It's in video form as well as audio. We'll put some links in the description. We also, as I said earlier, have a significant amount of pre-recorded material to share with you all. So do stick with us as our producers edit and dub those. It's a big task, but will be worth the wait. I know too, many of you are interested in the mood in Kyiv itself after our initial first reactions arriving in the country last week. The paper asked me to write a quick dispatch for our newsletter reflecting on the atmosphere in the city prior to the two-year anniversary of the full-scale invasion. So rather than providing some rather off-the-cuff reflections at the top of my head now, I thought it would be easier for me to read that instead, and I'll do so now. An air raid siren cries out over the city, the third this week. Locals say it is easy to forget Kyiv is a city at war two years after Russia's full-scale invasion. They say life goes on, that the bars, restaurants, coffee shops and museums must remain open. They say this with defiance, and after only a few days in Ukraine's capital, one can easily see how they adjust to the bombardment. Few people go to the shelters anymore, even at night. And yet, through foreign eyes, scars of the war are everywhere. One sees it in the recruitment posters at bus stops, in the shrapnel-scarred university buildings, in the boarded-up 19th-century statues, in the empty hotels, in the ruins of Russian tanks put proudly on display in St Michael's Square. One sees it in the sparsely populated streets at midnight curfew approaches, in the armed soldiers on patrol, in the television dramas about men suffering PTSD, in the dearth of Ukrainian men out on the town. The night train from Poland to Kyiv, one of the few ways of entering the country, is run by and full of women. So are many of the trendy drinking spots. Talking to a girl in one bar, a journalist, she tells me how such a simple thing as going nightclubbing is considered a deep ethical quandary. We want to go out to have fun, to meet boys, but how can we enjoy ourselves right now, she says just as news filtered through that the eastern town of Avdika had fallen to the Russians. I can go to concerts, but a nightclub? It's just too much. It does not feel right. The shadow of death hovers above the city like a cloud. One of our translators tearfully recalls how one of her friends has just been killed at the front. 
The iconic gilded interior of St Vladimir's Cathedral is darkened with incense as head-scarved women, mothers, wives, pray at icons and write hastily on the prayer cards in the candlelight as young uniformed men with new prosthetic legs watch on. The last serious bombardment was a week ago. One local man, hooded and weary, tells me how his bed shook from the impact of the Russian missiles shot down by air defences. It is these diverted falling meteorites, each packed with explosives, that kill civilians. No one knows when the next major attack will come, but everyone knows Moscow likes to strike on and around anniversaries, drumming home that they have not abandoned their maximalist aims. Only recently, Dmitry Medvedev, the former Russian president, said Moscow's forces must reach Kiev in order to end the war. The air raid siren calls out again. Life endures and will continue to do so, proudly, for as long as it can. But there is little cheer in the city of Golden Domes today, two years into this brutal invasion. Coming up, we talk to protesters in Kiev, campaigning for the freeing of their loved ones captured by the Russians. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Staying on Kiev. On the anniversary, we suddenly found ourselves in the middle of a protest in the city, as hundreds of people campaigned for the freeing of their loved ones from Russian captivity. David Knoll spoke to several to understand the situation those captured soldiers face and the reason their families believe their plight needs greater attention. So as you might be able to hear, there's some commotion here on the square just in front of St. Sophia's Cathedral in the centre of Kiev. A middlingly large protest is out. You can hear that car horns beeping in the background. Various people with Ukrainian flags are over their shoulders holding signs asking the government to free Azov, a reference to the members of the Azov Battalion, who many of whom were captured and imprisoned by the Russians after the destruction and capture of Mariupol, a city in the south. So there are lots of people milling about here. You can hear there's lots of people standing by the road asking drivers to, to hold their horns if they do support free Azov. So we're just going to talk to a few people here, just try and understand what this process is about why they're here, what they think the government can do at this point. But that's the atmosphere here in central Kiev on the anniversary of the start of the full-scale invasion two years ago. So in front of us, a man in a hoodie is walking past with three Azov. 
with black and red paint all over it. We have a man standing over there in a small beanie hat in the, in the English, give them back their freedom, hashtag free Azov. There's actually quite a lot of English here. They know what they're doing. And several hotels probably full of journalists just up and down this strip. And there are cars rushing past, people holding signs as well saying free Azov. So the protesters in the cars and the protesters here in the square res- responding to each other. There's several groups of soldiers and police watching on. Nobody's, nobody seems particularly concerned. I think they're just here to stop anything getting out of hand. Certainly there's no violence or anything that we've seen. But we'll go around and try and talk to a few people and understand why they're here. Hey, uh, yeah, but actually, Shannon, it's uh, Billy Sengis. Yeah. Oh, can you ask me a few questions about why you're here? Sure. Uh, so what, what's your name and how old are you? Uh, so, my name is Vladimir Avrush, and I'm here today uh, to see our defenders at home. We think that captivity is uh, quite a dangerous place to be, and we think that we want to see our defenders in Ukraine at home, because we are afraid of their lives, we are afraid of their health. Can I ask, what more do you think the government can do, considering that Ukraine is in a state of total war? What can the government do at this point? Uh, I think that our government is enough. For uh, uh, we have an exchanges of uh, POV, and uh, sure, this is the best way to bring our defenders at homes. But it, it's quite hard and long process. Russia don't like them at all. They uh, try to break the standard rules of changes of POV, and. It's very hard process, but we understand it, and we support our government to do everything they can to change our to do these changes because it's very important for us. So, what we're seeing here on this square is this in support of the government. You're just trying to encourage them to do more, yeah. not yeah. anti-government. Just to be clear, yeah, we just want to support their position because the only and the best way for bring our defenders at home is POV changes. Do you have friends fighting on the front lines in the army? Could you tell us about them? Do you know what they're going through? Uh, I had one friend in the army, but uh, he had died a year ago, and um, he was defending Bakhmut in the Azov, exactly. And um, I'm very sorry to hear that. Would you like to say anything more about your friend? What do you remember about him before he died? He was a wonderful person, and he was only 19 years old. That's my age right now, and uh, I'm totally proud of him. But uh, I'm very, I feel very sorry of uh, him not with us anymore. Are you worried looking ahead to you know, the changing mobilization law? I know you're only 19, but is that something that you think in your future that you'll join the military and fight? I think sometime. At first, I should get my degree, at least bachelor, and then maybe I have the thoughts, yeah. Is that something that your friends speak about as well? Is it something you talk about amongst yourselves? Mm, I don't think so, but uh, my friend going to our army uh, in the first day of uh, full-scale war. Our army need uh, new peoples to fight because people are dying, people are uh, harmed, and we need more and more and more. Today is the um, anniversary of the yeah. start of the full-scale invasion. What are your thoughts about that, and are you doing anything to mark today? This is the second meeting for me today, <laughs> and uh, now I try to support army in any way I can. Is there anything else you'd like to say to listeners from the United States or Britain or elsewhere around the world? 
Thank you for your support. And uh, we will win only with your help. And we're sure that you will give enough of it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Could you just introduce yourselves and give us um, your names and your age? Uh, my name is Anastasia. I'm 23 years old. I'm from Bucha and I'm Ukrainian. And I will ask for support Ukraine in any situation. Uh, my name is Maria. Uh, I'm from is Kharkiv. She will speak Ukrainian and I will translate her words. Thank you very much, Anastasia. So why are you here today? She is here to fight for that boy. His name is Ruslan Herasimenko and he is already 23 months in the Russian captivity. Where was he fighting? When was he captured? He was captured near Kharkiv in the village Vilhivka where Russians captured all his army. And how do you know him? What's your relationship? Uh, we was met three years ago and uh, after that we didn't speak one to each other but I remember him and he was a good friend and I have to speak about him. Do you know much about his conditions, where he is, what his life is like now? Yes, now uh, now he is in a capture in Belgorod Oblast in the village near Belgorod and uh, from the beginning Russians was tortured under him he was uh, beaten they made a massive big tortures but after the coming of international organization this torture became less but he is still in captivity and we don't exactly know what the Russians do with him What do you want the Ukrainian government to do to help to get him out of Belgorod? We are trying to speak not only to Ukrainian government but also to the international society because I think that international voices, this is what important uh, to free our heroes because Russians will hear only the language of power and this power can provide only a united international society. So we are here also to, to tell foreigners what's going on and how Russians tortured our people. Uh, Anastasia, could you tell us why you have, so just to describe to our listeners, you've got sort of lipstick on your lips, like, like they've been sewed together, like there's blood. Can you tell us why you've done that? Yeah, it shows like uh, the bloody mouth and our capture, they cannot see, they don't have voice, they, they cannot say anything to the world. So we are here, we are the voices, but by this performance I'm trying to show that uh, they cannot say any, any words. They, they are captured and they will be near the death so so we have to we have to speak instead of them when your friend comes home what will be the first things you do with him to welcome him back to ukraine first of all i will come to the place where uh, they will bring him and uh, i will meet him i will hug him and i will tell him about our fightings for his freedom i will tell him everything about this protest this performances and about the hard way how we were trying to free him and also i'll show the mails which i was sending uh, to the oleksievka where he is captured and uh, i hope he will be safe and healthy and we will start our happy life together <laughs> So just to be clear, are your friends or this is your partner or your friend? We didn't see each other during three years, so I think it's very, very, very good friend. But when he will come back, maybe it will be more than friendship. I hope so. Thank you. Is there anything we haven't said that you'd like to say? 
Don't be silent. The captivity is killing. The death in captivity is real. And the great example for this is Pavlo Bozok. And he was tortured by Russians. He was in the worst conditions you could even imagine. And after this torture, he was killed by Russians. So the captivity is uh, really killing. And we don't have to be silent. We have to tell to the world what's going on and how we can help. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ukraine The Latest. Your support and attention means a great deal. Just in case you didn't know, The Telegraph runs another podcast you may be interested in. Battle Lines is our weekly global affairs and defence podcast where we look at conflicts and unrest around the world with The Telegraph's foreign desk. On Battle Lines, you'll hear updates and news on everything from the violence in the Middle East and Red Sea, civil wars in Sudan and Myanmar, to unrest in Ecuador. Join Roland Oliphant, Sofia Yan and Natalia Vasilyeva on Battle Lines, published every Friday, with occasional segments by myself and other contributors to this podcast. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To support our work and to stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, please subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our foreign affairs newsletter, bringing stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. We also do the same for other breaking international stories. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do please refer to podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app and leave us a review as it really helps others find the show. Please also share it with those who may not be aware we exist. As the disinformation war ramps up, we are relying on your support more than ever. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do continue to read every message. You can also contact us directly on X, formerly known as Twitter. You'll find our handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Rachel Porter and Georgia Cohen. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.